Soraya. How's it going? All right. How about you? All right. All right. It's a tough weekend for us. It's going to be an emotional weekend, but um, it's all death and life this weekend for us. So it's a I'm tough one. This these are wild times. Yeah. Yeah. So funeral today um, and tomorrow we're doing a co-ed um, baby shower for our 12th grandchild. Isn't so that she, something? Yeah, she's due any day now. Emma Noel. So um, she just dropped and she flipped. So she's ready to head out the exit door. So, Holy moly. Yeah. So we, we've been telling our daughter-in-law, just wait till after the baby shower. So anytime after Sunday, <laughs> let Emma loose. Well, you need to tell Emma that. You need to, you need to get real close to her tummy and say, wait. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. So today uh, we'll be talking about a band that's often connected with Paisley Underground for some reason. Um, Called, uh, in a lot of places they refer to this band as Desert Psychedelia. I think that's very adequate. Yeah, I like that description. Yeah. So the band is Thin White Rope and today we'll be talking to their lead guitar player, Roger Kunkel. Kunkel. I think that's how you pronounce his name. So Roger was with the band for pretty much the whole decade of their existence. So um, early 80s to early 90s. So I'm looking forward to uh, talking to Roger. And I think we might need a little bit of help um, asking some questions. We have have an additional host who who's really useful in these situations. He's all right. He's pretty awesome. Ronnie Barnett. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So we're gonna have uh, our friend Ronnie Barnett join us, and yes. what looks to be a really interesting discussion with Roger. So, let's get started. Hi, this is Soraya, and this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agroviar. Let's get groovy. All right, Soraya. So today, we, as we talked about in our intro, we're very excited because we've been wanting to talk about Thin White Rope for quite a while because, uh, as we mentioned, Thin White Rope comes up in discussions quite a bit. And although we primarily focus on the Paisley Underground, we, we try to branch off a little bit and um, talk about music that's related in some way or another. And Thin White Rope is certainly related. Um, just as a way of introduction, the way that I came to Thin White Rope was actually partially due to the Paisley Underground. Um, of course, I loved the three o'clock and the first two records were out on Frontier. So when I was flipping through records in my independent section, which was the section I would always go to at uh, Lose Records in Encinitas, California, I came across this record right here, Exploring the Axis, and I saw the Frontier label and I thought, hey, maybe they sound like the three o'clock, which they don't <laughs> at all. <laughs> but um, <laughs> because of that label connection um, was the reason that I got into them. And I absolutely fell in love. So today we're speaking to Roger, who was the lead guitarist and songwriter vo- and uh, background vocalist um, for Thin White Rope. So welcome, Roger. And thank you for joining us today. Hi. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, excited to be here. So it was about um, a decade that the band 
existed from the early 80s to the early 90s. And from our understanding, um, the band started off with Guy and Joseph Becker, um, who we've talked to his sister Nan on the show and her connection with Game Theory. So we understand that those two guys put out an ad. Is that correct? And you answered the ad and that's how you joined the band? Uh, yeah, uh, well, <clears throat> I think it was, uh, there's a music store in Sacramento uh, called Skip's Music. So I, I was living in Sacramento at the time. Um, okay. I went to high school in, in Vacaville, which is not far from here, uh, and went to college in Sacramento. And I was just, you know, wanting to, to get into a band. I, I wasn't even that interested in going to college at first. I just wanted to go somewhere and, and you know, was interested in getting bands. So they had, you know, back then they had a bulletin board at the music shop and, and you know, instrument shop. And yeah, people would, would put up little adverts for trying to try and put a band together. And usually, you know, they, you'd list uh, the influences, you know, who you're into and stuff. And, and um, so, yeah, I put up uh, uh, something there and I think Joe had put something up or Kevin, or I forget if it was Joe or Kevin, I think it was Kevin uh, State of Horror that uh, I first contacted. And he told me that he had spoken to somebody, a drummer and a, a, a singer, guitar player, who was Guy. And, um, and so we got together and, and Originally, we practiced at Kevin's house in Sacramento. So we, we were kind of a Sacramento-Davis combination uh, to, to start, yeah. Just to go back a little before that, um, Roger, were you in bands in high school? I mean, uh, uh, I was. Uh, I <laughs> um, had a band in high school uh, that was mostly like hard rock covers and stuff. And then we, um, we'd play at the local parties and dances and things like that and uh actually a little bit in sacramento and and davis and and we were like 16 um and uh that band uh uh i'd mentioned in a in a thread earlier that steve packenham who ended up in true west for a while was the drummer of that band oh wow and what was the name of this band and what's what what were the cover <laughs> songs you were playing just some of them the band was called amperage <laughs> <laughs> and nice. so kind of you know and uh we started out with like that typical hard rock you know cover material that kids are still playing today i noticed you know let's <laughs> dc and black sabbath and and stuff like that but then at the same time um like half of the band was discovering punk rock and the other half was like leaning towards metal and so we were this weird combination where we we'd play uh, Ramones and Black Sabbath back to back. <laughs> I guess maybe that's not so weird, but um, and we had a, actually had a few original tunes too, um, and we're pretty decent, you know, high school band. Uh, but then things fell apart because uh, you know of the the artistic differences you know, within the within the group. Nice, nice. So I got to ask, when, when Thin White wrote, when you first met Guy, I mean, Guy, let's face it, has a very distinctive vocal style. Um, was that, was the Thin White Rope sound kind of there from the beginning or did, uh, did, he, did that develop? Did he develop his vocal style over 
a little bit there? His, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. And and I'll back up and say that you know Guy was really you know uh, the primary uh, songwriter you know of Thin White Rope. Uh, uh, the songwriting credits on the records are just sort of like for you know some musical com you know co contributions. You know, uh, Thin White Rope was essentially the Guy Kaiser band um, for the most part. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we first when we first started practicing, um, uh, yeah, Joe said, I, I, I play with this guy named Guy that uh, uh, writes songs and stuff. And so we started playing some of his songs. And at, at first I was a little taken aback because he, he sang in this like really like low, uh, wavery, deep voice. And, and it took a while to develop to what you hear on the records. Um, and I remember doing the first demo and he, and, you know, and there's that awkward thing where the singer has got the headphones on and you just hear the singing <laughs> yes. His voice was kind of bizarre, really. But uh, it didn't take long before it, you know, it was, it was obvious that this was a person who uh, was, you know, very original, very, you know, gifted songwriter and, uh, and had, if anything, uh, you know, a, a unique voice. And so that works. And, um, and yeah, eventually over time, he sort of physically developed his voice into this bigger gravelly thing, you know, that could scream and, and scare people. Yeah, you, you can kind of hear the development <laughs> on that first album, because like, I'd say half the album is kind mm -hmm. of, dare, dare I say, pop songs. And then half is kind of the thin white rope, <laughs> you know, kind of. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, Thin White Rope. I mean, no band sounds like Thin White Rope, let's face it. Um, his, yeah. His voice yeah. was emerging. Yeah. yeah. Soraya, what was the, the definition that, or the description that you often hear? Okay. So that, what, the Desert Psychedelia or the one that I've, it says, Thin, this is from an article from 2016. Thin White Rope were too harsh to be labeled as Jangle too loud for the emerging alternative country movement and too dark to fit into the flowery paisley underground yeah but you know it guy's voice is unique but the sound ronnie you hit it on the nose no band sounds like thin white rope no I, not only vocally i think musically oh, yeah. as well I, there's like a, a sinister feel or a dark feel but still pop it's like a dark pop i guess <laughs> as is how i would describe it but yeah, there's nobody sounds like. Well, yeah, uh, we'll get to the yeah guitar interplay, Roger. I mean, with you and Guy, I right. mean, um, it's unbelievable. You know, I I don't want to mention television, but you know, I'm sure you got television comparisons because, uh, you know, you guys play off each other, yeah. and uh, did that just kind of happen naturally, or did you was it a conscious effort to make it happen? Well, I think we both. <laughs> well, television was an influence yeah. for sure. Uh, uh, we had some common influences going into it. Uh, uh, like we both liked old blues and, and uh, country music. Um, I was kind of raised, uh, my, my, my parents were listened to country music, sort of the slick country music of the 1960s, you know, like Patsy Cline and Jim Reeves and stuff like that. But I discovered some, uh, Chet Atkins records when I was a kid and that's what got me really started on guitar 
And then, you know, I was in the right age where the whole uh, hard rock, you know, thing happened with heavy guitar sounds. And so I was really into, you know, a heavy distorted fuzz tone guitar and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and of course, most kids playing guitar at that time, I guess, were. Um, and uh, so I don't know, uh, it, did it start right away? Kind of, uh, you know, Guy was doing some like, you know, some uh, un unorthodox stuff. You know, he's he's got that, he had that uh, Ovation Breadwinner guitar and he was like plugged into this solid state Marshall amp with, uh, I forget what fuzz tone he was using at the time. Um, and it took a while to, I mean, we both wanted to play lead guitar, of course. And, um, yeah, I think at first I, 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 I tried to just do like interesting rhythmic stuff, rhythm guitar parts and stuff. And, and, and over time it sort of evolved into this, you know, try to, uh, orchestrate, you know, more guitars together and stuff. And then in the later years, we were really getting into, you know, harmonizing and, and doing feedback simultaneously and that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, um, I think just the, the we, we, we like that sound and te television was an influence, uh, but, you know, we did more of the, you know, long uh, sustained singing feedback, things like that, you know, we, so we both sort of like strategized on on the blending of the guitars like we even so much as to choosing amplifiers that would complement each other like i typically used a fender amp and guy would use a marshall um we were both playing fender guitars but um you know just tried to make sure that the guitars created a space a, a, you know a, a spacious combined sound um and but once in a while you know stuck to the rhythm and lead formula that's that's typical and, right I, I was lucky enough to see uh you guys like four or five times and um i mean live uh, of course you can hear that on the records but live i mean it was really special and unbelievable um to watch roger so um R ronnie were those shows in texas or here in california yeah i saw I saw the band twice in, in Texas at a club called Fitzgerald's. I'm from Houston. And, um, and then, Oh yeah, that, that place was great. Yeah. yeah it's uh they tore that down, yeah. Roger, um, that, that old house it had That's been there sad. for a hundred years. They tore it down, but, um, yeah. And we would stay, we had Thanksgiving there once. So it was great. Oh yeah. Yeah. They had the behind the, the band house. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then, um, when I first moved to California, 89, I saw you, um, with American Music Club at Bogarts and Club Lingerie. That was right when the RCA deal uh, mm -hmm. happened, I believe. Uh, so sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to the major label thing. But uh. <laughs> I have a, a question about the band's name. So it's it's well known <laughs> that the band's name um, was from the William S. Burrow book Naked Lunch and uh, the description of the male ejaculate. So is that something that the whole bit Ronnie, you look surprised. Yeah, I didn't say it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, so did yeah. the did the entire band agree to that name or? Well, we had to agree agree to it at some point. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, it was um, a friend. A friend of the band suggested it, um, and 
uh, we were all crazy about Bill Burroughs at the time. And, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, um, I can't think of there, if there were many, there, if there were many alternatives in play, um, uh, it's kind of, it, it turned out to be awkward and, you know, <laughs> in more ways than one, uh, for you, like on our first tour, like it seemed like almost every other night the the club would get it wrong and write it as thin white line, you know, some reference oh. to cocaine <laughs> or something. An entirely uh, different, different thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then it's always awkward when, you know, like when your parents start reading reviews and stuff and, you know, <laughs> so see that, but. Well, yeah. Um, and every interview is asking, where'd you get the band name? Or, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, on Apple Music, it's like the first thing they say in the description of the band, you know, so, so it's hard to get away from it. Yeah. yeah. But you know, metaphorically, it, it it's a strong, you know, strong metaphor for, you know, the, the tenuous connections between that we form between people and the consequences of such connections and intended or otherwise. You know. Yeah. And in and of itself, it's, it it just flows nicely. I mean, regardless of where it came from, or... so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ronnie, uh, Ronnie, I'm, I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to get off of that. <laughs> um, uh, Roger, how, so how does Frontier Records find you? Find you guys? Um, well, that was interesting. Um, we uh, so um, at so let's see, it must have been '83 or or so when we were all excited thinking you know we were going to jump into this you know cool alternative music scene um and uh, we knew that some bands were you know, the we there was a a guy who he was somehow involved with uh, game theory too uh scott vanderbilt uh, i think he was their manager or, yeah. or something at the time but, uh, he offered to manage the band and he had contacts at Enigma and a couple other, you know, indie labels. And uh, we did a demo in town here in Davis with the intention of it being an album. And, uh, and he was shopping that to labels. But at some point, uh, somebody in England got a copy of the, of the demo and I, I, it might have been Russ, actually. It might have been uh, uh, somebody told me that they had slipped a, a cassette to somebody when they were in London. I think I, I think that um, True West was being courted by Island Records at the time, and and he, somebody I think Russ did us the favor of slipping a demo to, to someone, and it it got to a bucket full of brains um the fanzine and they really liked that tape and they did a big write-up on thin white rope and this was before we were signed or had a record out wow and that got back to lisa so it <laughs> so the demo went from davis to london and back to la uh and wow. lisa really liked the demo um and at the time uh she was uh trying to work out a deal with island records a distribution deal with uh, frontier and island records and island records was uh hot on you know part of the uh, the true west thing plays into this because they they were interested in west coast american neo-psychedelic uh bands like this was the, the you know this was on the horizon as a big wave you know they were thinking this was going to be really cool 
And so they identified a few bands um, that they were interested in. And the idea was that it, they'd be signed to Frontier, but licensed to uh, Island. And so uh, Lisa contact, uh, got a hold of us and said, you know, we want to sign you. Uh, and she had to buy out because we had already signed a management contract with uh, Scott and um, she had to buy that out, but she had money. She was willing to spend money because Island was talk, was throwing a lot of money around, I guess. Um, so it was us and the long riders and. Uh, uh, Rain parade. Maybe Rain parade. Yeah, it was part of it was part of it. But there's like this few bands that were going to be part of this deal. Oh. Um, and so we, and that's why the first record we made was done in a, in an expensive professional studio because there was money. Uh, but then in the end, Island pulled out of that deal and went with long riders only, I think. Um, and so Lisa got held, uh, you know, ended up having to, <laughs> having to pay the bill for all this stuff. Or eventually, eventually we did, I guess. But um, yeah, so it was all kind of a whirlwind and, and roundabout strangeness that we finally ended up uh, getting our first album out on Frontier. Yeah, I'd noticed that about the first record, like Mixed It Ocean Way. And, uh... Yeah, um, it was actually, enge you know, engineered by Dennis Dragon, yeah. uh, famously Daryl Dragon, the captain's uh, brother. Yes. Uh, the captain and Tennille. So there's a captain and Tennille thin white rope connection. <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and he tragically passed away not too long ago. I noticed uh, an article about uh, and Jeff Eirich, uh, both of those guys were, if you remember, the surf punks yes. with this L.A. sort of, you know, surfer dude punk band. Um, and uh, yeah, point, uh, Dennis Dragon lived in this house uh, in Malibu uh, that had, uh, he had a mobile uh, set up in this truck parked outside the house. And then in the basement was this studio space. Wow. And that's where we recorded that first album. And it was all like fantastic to us because we had just been used to, you know, typical, you know, local scene and, and uh, you know, recording on crappy eight tracks and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, um, that record was, was an experience. When we were done with it, we didn't like it because it didn't sound like we sounded live. Mm -hmm. Oh, how, how was it different? Um, well, I don't know, just the big production on everything and, and we were a little stilted in our playing and, and such. Um, 
you know, it felt a little stiff. Uh, it didn't, it didn't sound as, as, as loose and, and free flowing as we were used to, but in, in retrospect, uh, yeah, I think it sounds really, it's an interesting sounding record. Yeah. Well, well, the next record, uh, Moonhead is where all that came together, right? Yeah, Moonhead was where, so we, with Moonhead, we, we went to uh, 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 this guy, Paul McKenna, who was an engineer for uh, A&M uh, Records, uh, had his own studio, and we were, so, he'd take on, you know, small projects, indie projects, if he liked the band or whatever, and um, it was also, you know, super nice little studio, though, but we were much more, like, you know, comfortable and and involved in the production and stuff on that one. And, and the Moonhead sounded like we wanted to sound. Yeah. And, and you toured a lot between records, right? I mean, you, you, like I said, I saw you a couple times. You guys seem to tour a whole lot um, during these frontier years. Um, well, the first tour, <laughs> uh, the first tour was kind of infamous. Uh, and it was a combined, like least once again, there were other players in, involved. And, and so, uh, spin uh, spin radio underground oh, yeah. from spin magazine andrea anthal uh, she was like really high on the band and other frontier acts and stuff and so our first tour was semi-sponsored by spin magazine and um and it was three bands at once it was us and the pontiac brothers and naked prey and uh, it was dubbed the good the bad and the ugly tour that's right we did hear about that right? uh and we rotated headliner but but and it was all well and good because it, it was like it was cool that spin magazine was was advertising it and stuff and and that got us booked into larger places than we should have been booked into because nobody had heard of these bands before so you know people didn't flock to the clubs just because spin magazine says you know check out this new tour and so we had some bad uh nights like uh showing up at first avenue in, in yeah. minneapolis to a completely empty house oh yeah you know it's a big room we should have been yeah we should have been in the side street entry yes. right yes. Uh, instead, of, <laughs> instead of the big room and we'd be lucky to be there even in fact the next time we came through we we're in the side street entry and then in boston they booked us in some weird big place and Billy Gibbons was the only guy who sh showed up. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Just out of coincidental, but they canceled the show. We didn't pay, play it. We oh. didn't get to play for oh. Billy Gibbons. But yeah, this limo shows up and it turns out ZZ Top's playing in town and, and he's like out on the town to see what's happening. Uh, but yeah, they canceled the show because nobody showed up. Wow. And, and so most of our shows were on that first tour were, some of them were fun, some were disastrous. And um but it was an interesting trip. So that was like a real tour, you know, five-week tour or something. And 
and but then after Moonhead came out is when we started touring um, uh, on our own and and yeah a lot yeah we especially once we started going to Europe we we were touring like uh, probably seven months out of the year or so for the next six or seven years. Nice. We, we should also also mention there's a spin records uh, there's a live thin white rub show like a radio show that exists on vinyl that uh, people should find if they can. Cause uh, I have, Oh, is that the, that's the spin radio? Underground yeah. Yeah. Pressing? I have, I have yeah. one of those. Um, oh, you have that right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't own that. I uh, nice. encourage people to find it, but a uh, good thing spin was sponsoring that tour, Roger, because those canceled shows, I mean, that would have been a disaster yeah. for an independent <laughs> tour. Right. Oh. Like, yeah. It, you know, you know, it was, uh, it, yeah, it was, uh, pack every you know well all of our tours were just shove everything into a, a van and and uh live on on I, I remember it was ridiculous because it was set up as if it was a big deal tour we had laminates you know <laughs> nice. and um nice. and the tour, there was a tour manager guy and he told yeah. us like we were going to be in big trouble if we play if we traded our laminates for sexual favors he didn't oh. for <laughs> <that>. um <laughs> And uh, and then we got seven. We each got seven dollars a day to to eat lunch with or something. Wow, yeah. legit tour. Yeah, yeah, Roger, you alluded to this earlier, but um, the title track "Moonhead." You've got a songwriting credit. So, um, and then uh, we didn't mention "Real West" on on the debut album. You also got a songwriting credit. So, is this more of a guy brings in these songs and you add? You add something yeah, to it? Yeah, essentially, you know, uh, you know, just, I mean, there's a lot of instrumental, there's a long instrumental section in, the, in that song, you know, uh, so I, you know, it's just sort of a, you know, de musically developing the tune that Guy would start with, yeah. I think that tune he had actually had written that tune like years earlier. Moonhead? Yeah. Okay. So the, the songwriting process was pretty much guy bringing in, bringing in the songs to the band and you guys would work yeah. out your parts. And so would pretty he, much. would he um, suggest what you should play or you would come up with your own parts? Uh, mostly my own. Sometimes he would, at some point he got himself a four track cassette. And so he'd, he'd come out of his little, you know, home studio laboratory with a bunch of stuff on there. And I'd be all like, Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd rather invent my part, but once in a while, you know, I mean, there'd be some parts on there. It's like, Oh, that's like really, you know, freaking cool. I, I guess I'll play that part. So <clears throat> that would vary too. Um, you know, he, he is, guys, he's definitely a, a, you know, composer. He's, you know, he's a, uh, he's a poet. He's a composer. He's a guitar player. He's a singer. He's like the whole package, you know, and um, kind of a control freak too. But, you know, the whole band would, uh, uh, you know, obviously makes an impact and, and it would vary from song to song. Roger, there's a show um, on YouTube from the, uh, the Cattle Club, I believe, where Guy is playing naked. Um, <laughs> what is the story with that? I've always wondered, what is the story with that? Uh, that show was at a warehouse okay. in Davis uh, that we called the Olive Pit. It's on Olive Drive in Davis. And it was also a rehearsal space for some bands. But we'd have, uh, for a while, had some shows and parties there. Um, it was... <laughs> 
It was a bet. It it was uh, somebody offered guy like forty dollars to play naked, <laughs> and, and uh, he took them up on it. So cowboy boots and and wow. Telecaster slung down low. Um, the whole set. The whole. Yeah. Wow. The whole set. Okay. Um, and the original it, naked cowboy. One thing that's funny about that is that uh, at the time that happened, you know, there was no YouTube. Yeah. And YouTube started getting uh, uh, popular in the 90s, I guess. And sure enough, Thin White Rope stuff starts showing up. But that's the first thing <laughs> that that someone posted uh, about Thin White Rope. And since and for years, uh, yeah, or mostly. And so for years... Like if you Googled thin white rope, that would be the top item, right? You know, so, so I just thought it was hilarious that, you know, 10 years later, uh, you know, if guy go, if guy's on a computer and, and goes to thin yeah. white rope, he sees himself naked. So <laughs> it's pretty funny. So that was just a one-time thing, not something that happened often. One time, yeah, definitely a one-time thing. Yeah. yeah, it didn't become his, uh, his, this thing yeah yeah <laughs> there's a there's a good recording of that show um and, or, or there were two i think there were two and someone actually had a a, a four track reel to reel uh recording going for that show i think there's a true west there was one where true west played on the bill of one of those i get them mixed up so i'm not sure if it was that night or a different one but and a friend of ours is uh, interested in in mastering that and putting it out. It's a hmm. it's a good live recording. Yes, wonderful, nice. Um, okay, so after Moonhead, uh, Roger, you start having some lineup changes. Um, jo- Joseph leaves, and you get a new bass player. Um, uh, I think maybe you had two more bass players. Am I am I right on that? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Steve Teslick, uh, who played on the first two records. Um, uh, left the band after that. He was kind of frustrated because he was actually a guitar player uh, playing bass. And he contributed a lot. I mean, there's some like really great bass lines that that he contributed. And, and, you know, we had just finished making Moonhead and it turned out so well. And we were really excited about it. And then he told us that he was leaving. And uh, so that I was kind of shocked. Um, and uh, John Von Felt replaced him and John Von Felt was from uh, Denver originally, but he was living in LA and playing in in uh, a couple bands around there. I can't remember exactly how we made contact with him. I think Lisa Fancher was trying to put the word out in various ways. Um, and uh, he came out, he actually moved to Davis and uh, joined the band and did, did tons of touring with us. Uh, he and Joe Becker didn't get along, uh, and on tour, things kind of started to disintegrate at, at one point, um, and we decided we needed to, uh, Joe was having trouble uh, in his, in the band and, and on tour and, and stuff, and so we decided to replace Joe and found uh, Matt Aberisk, who had, was also an L.A. area drummer and photographer um and uh he was like his style was different than Joe's. he was very powerful you know uh and it really sort of 
pushed our live shows into another level of volume and and energy and stuff so that was good um but joe and john both are on the recording right of in the spanish cave uh let's see um that's the third record yep. uh yeah joe and john are on that yeah How was it recording the record? Were they was it were they okay in the studio to record this yeah. album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like the pressures of touring, I I think. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it was we. It's it's funny, guys. Guy and I were very much conscious of the the fact that you know turnover in a band is not a good thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't have that you know cohesive thing where you're like ah oh, we're all in this together and we've been doing it since we were kids you know sort of feeling um so it was uh, I, I don't know if i'd say regrettable but yeah i mean it, i i do wish that we had managed to keep the original unit together um in retrospect yeah um well like but, like you, know, you say it's, exactly. it's hard to tour you know you guys are in a van and you're probably sharing one hotel room and if that yeah 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 <laughs> you know that you know that feeling yeah 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 did you uh did you guys share beds like in one hotel room who was your who was your bed man? Oh, we, yeah you had to either share beds or, or take turns on the floor you know and <laughs> and a lot of times the floor of a of a motel six is not a place you want to lay down <laughs> keep that in mind soraya and yeah. jeff Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it wasn't very glamorous so uh, well you know touring in europe was much better uh oh. um we were treated with respect in europe uh wow <laughs> <laughs> in that we got hotel proper hotel rooms and 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 meals and yeah so we loved uh we enjoyed europe a lot more uh than than the states just because it was just you know it was more comfortable it was more exotic it was the food was better and, right you know, people enthusiastic and that shows were bigger and all that stuff roger did you do multiple tours in europe yeah we toured quite a lot um probably we'd we'd go to between moonhead and the end of the band we'd go to europe at least twice a year and usually for like three months at a time or so wow um and uh it started with uh with well, a moonhead record had come out and uh uh, suddenly, Lisa calls us and says, "There's a guy in Italy that wants to bring you to Italy." And uh, we had, you know, before we had ever we had been to Europe at all, and so we were like excited about that prospect. And we we did a week long trip in Italy, and when we got there, we discovered that we were rock stars in Italy, and like the record was had like getting lots of radio play. Wow, and. Uh, and we found ourselves on a bill with X and Billy Bragg. Wow. And 10,000 Maniacs at this like big outdoor festival. Nice. <clears throat> um, and we played in, in like public parks with several thousand people and stuff. And so this was a big shock for us. And um, 
And so the Italian promoter who booked the tour continued to work with us. And he said, well, I'll bring you over again for a prop for an actual European tour. But that was like, it was like us packed into a Vanagon, a Volkswagen Vanagon yes. with tiny little amplifiers. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we made it into Germany and all the way into Norway and, and stuff. And, and, uh, and that, that was our first experiences in Europe. And then, um, we find we made it we, we didn't make it to england until like the third time over um and then we started being booked by paperclip out of uh holland and uh and then there was the soviet tour mm, which whoa. was this bizarre uh, uh circumstance that um deserves talking about yeah 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 <laughs> how many um, how many ready. dates was that and, and what kind of vehicle and and accommodations uh, uh were going on there how much time do we have? Let's see. Um, <laughs> it was so the Italian the the Italian promoter uh, Paolo Bedini uh, in Rome uh, was friendly friendly with uh, friends of his worked in the sort of Ministry of Arts of Italy or something, and they they were involved in some sort of uh, cultural exchange with with Russia with Moscow, where some. Uh, uh, Russian artists and musicians had come to Rome and performed and stuff, and then they were going to reciprocate and, and send Italians to to uh, to uh, Russia. And uh, so Paolo decided to to hijack this process and put us in the mix. <laughs> and um, even though we we're an American band, and um, so he arranged this, and uh, we were there for like three weeks. Um, we flew to Moscow. Um, the Russians were somewhat surprised that a, a rock band from America was, was in, <laughs> in the mix and they were looking at our passports and squinting and we stayed in some weird hotel and we played at this like theater with like high society folks in the audience with like minks on and stuff and and um, it was on, it was broadcast on Soviet national television and it was all quite surreal. Yeah. And then they put us on a train, um, this rickety wooden train that uh, went down to uh, Tbilisi, Georgia. And we played at the uh, opera house of Tbilisi, Georgia for like four nights in a row uh, to a packed audience through the strangest PA ever made in these <laughs> Polish amplifiers and and uh, and then the Armenian earthquake hit and shook the whole town and and we were stuck there for a few days and then we flew to Lithuania and played in Vilnius and uh, Kraunas and uh, um, and finally got back to uh, Rome and it was all qu quite strange and but really you know fun um and uh we by the time we got back to rome we 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 they kept us there like a, a week or two longer than they said it was going to be and so all of our flights were were gone and it was almost christmas it was 1988 and um we got uh uh we find we had we were stuck in rome and because we couldn't find a flight home and then we finally got booked on pan am 103 and we were all set to go um when um, we 
could not find a connection from, because Pan Am 103 was going to New York and we needed a connection to San Francisco and we couldn't find one. So we canceled our reservations at the last minute. <laughs> so it, it was a very crazy trip and we wow. finally made it home from, from that. Uh, thought we were gonna die numerous times. Yeah. Guy almost got arrested by the Moscow police for urinating in public. <laughs> um, we, we had this incredible we had this evening in in Tbilisi where the locals like had us over for dinner and we were already way too drunk on this strange green vodka that they that they like make in the underground on the black market and they had us in this super traditional dinner that was all very nice but it but it involved um toasting with a giant horn filled with wine you had you had to get up and make a toast and like chug the entire horn of wine which was like a bottle of wine and we were already way too drunk and everybody started vomiting and it and chaos ensued and people like ran and you know panicked and ran and um it was it was a very strange trip wow yeah and we and we found ourselves in weird places like that we also went to hungary and uh, Budapest, and this was all, you know, during the Soviet era. And, wow. Uh, so it was pretty strange. What an experience. A lot of fun. Yeah. And then we, you know, we tried to concentrate on Germany and England and Scandinavia <laughs> after that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, man, I can't, I, I'm having a hard time recovering from that, Roger. That's, uh, <laughs> I, that's the condensed, I, that's the highly con- I, condensed version. I feel like I've, that's I, like I'm on the, I was on the tour and I'm not, yeah. <laughs> okay. So probably some, yeah. Okay. So uh, the RCA deal happens now. Um, how, how does that affect you or does it at all? Are you still dealing with just frontier and then they're just distributing mm-hmm. RCA is just distributing the records. Yeah. Uh, mostly um, RCA was uh, pretty hands off. And uh, I'd, I'd say, if anything, it was a negative because, um, you know, at that time, most uh, uh, self-respecting, uh, you know, indie underground band, bands were very anti-big uh, uh, label, you know, uh, including the distributors like uh, Rough Trade in, uh, in Europe uh, essentially did not carry uh, major label material like in in germany they it was like the you know mark of the beast and you got you know <clears throat> you got pushed aside so we ended up selling uh less uh in in europe than we did on the previous uh record i think um so and they didn't they they didn't really do us many favors as far as like you know infusing a bunch of money for for advertising or uh you know other promotion and stuff. It was just, you know, we got, you know, got the, got to say, Hey, I'm on a major label. Um, but, um, yeah. And it, 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 it didn't really affect us very much. And, and we actually were spending less on our recording, you know, the, the fourth album was recorded with Tom Mallon in San Francisco. Um, and in his, uh, studio, which was less expensive than what we had been doing. Yeah. Sack full of silver, 
and that sort of grew out of our relationship with American Music Club. You know, we'd become, you know, friends with those guys on label mates and played a lot of shows together. And, and uh, uh, Tom was uh, uh, just a really gifted uh, engineer and recordist. And I, I really liked that record. That, that record, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I, I was really happy with how it came out. Yeah. Roger, your your one co-write on the album has an odd name. It's not even really a name. It's a it's a, it's a shape. Yep. <laughs> the, the triangle song. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. why the triangle song? Uh, why did I get the co-write? Uh, just you know, I I think you know, like I say, guy, you know, obviously it was a it's a Guy Kaiser song, uh, and it was just sort of a matter of like, oh, you know, which song did Roger? contribute you know most to oh, okay in this batch you know sort of thing so is he throwing you a bone yeah pretty much <laughs> i'd say it, do you but i mean uh, you know uh, just just like i say it, it was kind of the guy kaiser band uh, as far as that goes um uh, obviously you know we were all proud of our contributions musically <laughs> Yeah, but it was a bit arbitrary the songwriting credits because it was more like you know okay, I'm gonna I'm not gonna have a blanket you know Guy Kaiser only you know right uh, songwriting credits yeah we, Understood. we should mention that's before Prince you having that just symbol you know un, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you were ahead of the uh, I, I don't know yeah I figured <laughs> what year he did that um, but yeah I, I like that lyric a lot. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of a sucker for guys, more poetic lyrics, you know, he'd really get in these landscape, you know, geography driven, you know, yeah. uh, lyrics and stuff. Really nice, uh, really nice stuff. Yeah. So, so uh, I guess we're to the kind of the, the end, like how, how, how does the band kind of decide to break up or does it just kind of fall apart or, yeah, yeah we have one more record there, but. Uh, yeah, well, I think, I think Guy, you know, Guy was, um, and I want, I don't want to speak too much for him, yeah. but essentially, you know, Guy was a very, is a very private uh, introverted person uh, and being a front man of a rock and roll band was uh, difficult for him just emotionally and, you know, uh, and he was kind of struggling with it and um, infusing uh, himself with a lot of uh, alcohol and, and, you know, to like every show he'd, he'd have to sort of like, get into a state of mind that was very taxing for him, you know, and, and, um, and then there were some personal things going on, not so much between us, uh, but uh, uh, love life things. Uh, and um, triangle song is a good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And um, so at some point, you know, he started a new uh, relationship and he was frustrated. He, he was definitely frustrated that the band wasn't more successful uh, and felt like the American tours, you know, we were doing the same thing every time or, you know, playing the same, same places. So there was some frustration with that, with that. It had been 10 years, you know, it's a long time. Yeah. And he just, he just did a, uh, a really significant uh, shift, you know, in his life. He wanted to change things up quite a lot. And so he just called me up one day and said he was quitting the band. And I said, well, that's inconvenient. (laughs) (laughs) If you quit, you know, um, that pretty much ends the band. Um, So, yeah, um, he just decided to call it quits. And then, so the final tour, um, I, I managed to talk him into doing the, the final tour. Um, and of course we did a live album of the final show and that's the, the one that got away that, that record. And so I'm really happy that, it, uh, that happened because, uh, I, you know, that, that live record is, is the band at that point and like everything we had come to as far as our live performance goes, and it really sound it really sounds like how the band sounded live, and it's two hours, you know, plus of plowing through all the material. So, so Roger, the understanding was that that was going to be the final tour. You knew it. Yeah, yeah, it was all preconceived, you know, as a as a final tour. We it was a short tour in June. Uh, I turned thirty. We played in we played at uh, at uh, Ruskelder. Uh, in uh, Denmark, Denmark, and the Reading Festival. So this was ninety one or ninety two. Ninety two. By that time, I think, yeah, ninety two. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so it was just like a couple of weeks of some good, good gigs, and um, and then that culminating show in Belgium where we, where we did the recording. So that had to have been. Oh, it was nice to be able to plan plan the whole ending of it. Yeah. 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 No, hey, it's quite a career, Roger. I mean, 10 years, five albums, uh, EP, compilation, double live album. I mean, uh, all the, yeah, you know, it's amazing. And, and a fantastic discography. I mean, the entire discography is great. And then Frontier decides to reissue it on 180 gram. And my buddy, Paul Dubray, ma- mastered <laughs> yeah. it and did a masterful job of. Yeah. yeah. So how are, were, uh, were you pleased with the reissue campaign? Yeah, and of course, the most important thing is the colors. Yes, yeah. <laughs> two different colors, two different two of each title. Different yeah, colors. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I think they sound really good. Um, and it, it was uh, in the '80s, and I don't want to rag on Rainbow uh, Records, but but I was always frustrated with the quality could because our test pressings would always sound better than the than the product okay and uh and some of the product was not that good and you know and you know maybe i was you know expecting too much like you know japanese master pressings or something (laughs) um uh but this is better you know this is you know it's a better quality vinyl it's a better pressing it's uh, you know and then the mastering sounds great um i can hear a lot of definitely can hear a lot of detail and it's fun it's fun to listen to the records with that much detail because it's it sparks memories of actually recording this stuff you know? nice right it's like oh yeah we got about that little part you know nice sort of thing so yeah i was happy that that lisa decided to do that so roger i'm a vinyl nerd i love vinyl records and i have a 
couple walls of record albums. And typically I like to go for the original pressings, but I'm definitely going to recommend if anybody is not familiar with Thin White Rope and you're going to in, invest some money, go with the reissues on, on in, in this case. Typically I say go with the yeah. original pressings, but in this case, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the remastered versions are fantastic. No, and they're highly afford. They're like 16 bucks. Like they're, they're. Yeah, they're 16 yeah, bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> highly affordable in this day and age so yeah and roger you continue to play music um it's not like thin white rope but uh just yeah. tell us just a little bit about what, yeah, it's very different. what you do now yeah well you know after the after the band broke up i wanted to do something totally different so i i, I had a band in the 90s called the acme rocket quartet and it was an instrumental uh four piece surprisingly and uh mostly my music but sort of a collaboration um kind of surf jazz rock hybrid of stuff and uh we made three we made three cds and it was all i got into recording i bought some basic equipment and an eight track and i did all the recording myself i i sold off my solid body guitars and just got an old, a crappy old uh arch top and uh did like this pseudo jazz uh stuff we, we sort of got lumped into the lounge, the lounge scene in, in San Francisco at the time. And so we played at like Bruno's and, and, and uh, Bimbo's once and like big warehouse parties and things like that. But the band didn't tour at all. None of us were keen on touring at the time. Uh, so we made, we made three CDs and those are on Bandcamp, uh, Acme Rocket Quartet. And then, so then I, I got pretty into bluegrass. Uh, um, you know, and old time, and you know, it's just nice to be able to play acoustic instruments, you know, when you're in your house with your children and stuff. Um, and, uh, and actually Guy was getting, Guy, Guy became a banjo player, and we, we actually had a bluegrass band together for a while, uh, around 2008 or something. So we did a demo, I actually had, had hopes that we'd, we'd uh, pursue that but one of the one of the band members, I was playing mandolin and guy was playing uh, uh, banjo, and I, I I do have a demo recording, but it's not super good quality. And then the guitar player moved away, and we never managed to get it back together. And then all of a sudden, guy was you know deciding he didn't want to perform uh, again. Um, and uh, recently, uh, I play in a I play in like sort of a honky tonk classic country roadhouse kind of band called Mike Blanchard and the Californios and we sort of we do the the beer circuit basically you know the, <laughs> nice. uh, all the brew pubs and stuff around the area and that's a lot of fun and um, I'm pursuing becoming a solo guitarist um, and I, I made a CD that's on Bandcamp that's solo acoustic guitar uh, and I was just getting into getting out and performing <laughs> during that before the lockdown. Yeah. So I haven't done a whole lot of that yet. Uh, I got out just before the lockdown. I, I was starting to get out and play and sort of guest, you know, playing with people here and there. And I, I did a, a show with Russ in L.A. with just a couple songs, actually. And that was fun. Uh, and uh, yeah. So I, I'd, I'd love to get out and play more. I'm kind of envious of, you know, bands of the 80s that have, 
you know, reformed and are actually able to tour and, and uh, you know, do that sort of stuff. Maybe it could still happen, Roger. Then White Robe yeah. reunion, maybe. Yeah, well, no one's been able to, able to convince Guy. Yeah, well, maybe he's, it sounds like he, he goes in and out of uh, wanting to play music. So you never know, right? Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Roger, as soon as he sees this episode of Paisley Stage, Raspberry and Ryan, it's all going <laughs> to flip. It's going to be like, yes, yes, let's do this. Yes. Expect a phone call next week. <laughs> right. Guy's going to be on the phone. Let's take, come on, Roger, let's take this on the road. Let's give Joe yeah. a call. <laughs> Wonderful. And we should tell people to join the Thin White Rope uh, fan page on Facebook because Roger will occasionally put up a, uh, a clip of him playing and uh yeah absolutely roger's an amazing player uh so i know you're right here roger but yeah roger's a amazing <laughs> player. Well, thank you yeah yeah thank you so much roger for taking time to, to walk us through uh the history of the band it was it, it was only a decade but it was a very impactful um career for the band at least for me it, it all started off with that seeing that frontier label on the back of mm-hmm. exploring the axis and um but yeah, all, well, all the records are fantastic thank goodness for lisa fancher and yeah. uh frontier records yeah yeah Absolutely. we had her on the show and she's very supportive of the band even to this day mm-hmm. oh yeah she doesn't remaster everything so uh no, the no, fact no, that no, she no. did the thin white rope shows uh the love there so absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yep thin white rope and christian death there you go right <laughs> maybe circle jerks adolescence, adolescence. That's, yeah. color. that's, that's about it though Su- I mean, suicidal uh, tendencies that's the yeah. yeah that's the oh wait there's a, the list is getting longer i know i know <laughs> it's probably only five about five yeah. though it's a yeah, it's okay. a small waiting list, on the so. choir invisible uh remaster <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> probably not gonna happen <laughs> all right roger thank you so much for taking time to to chat with us we really appreciate it sure it was fun thanks roger and keep us keep us nice posted on you. anything new please especially yes. after you get the call from guy yeah yeah okay i'll see you in davis <laughs> roger i'll see you in davis i'll see you in davis okay. or carlos sacramento yep okay all right thank you so much we really appreciate it all right bye-bye bye-bye oh ronnie thank you gone. for making that happen of course wow. yeah thanks for having me along guy. i don't mean to, be, mean to keep crashing these things but uh thanks no, for having but... me along uh oh no 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 that, yeah that'll be did you press record jeff i did it's a, it shows recording at the top okay okay because i didn't i didn't do the authorization like i you know what i mean usually it tells me to oh anyway okay it's right it is showing as recording on your side right yeah no it's showing as recording okay. here all right so, <laughs> and you know if, if anything, let me see, what are some of the things we learned? First of all, the walk through the five albums was really interesting to me. And Guy seems to be much more enigmatic now than when we started recording. Oh, yeah. I, I, had, I, I think just hearing a little more about him, he just seems more like a puzzle. Yeah. I'm kind of, I think it's probably a healthy move for him to step away, it sounds like to me. So we don't want like an Ian Curtis thing, right? We don't want something to happen where it's just so unhealthy for a person to do something like this. And then, um, so it, there, it sounds like there is a time for certain people to step away for their own sanity's sake. And maybe for Guy, that might be the case. Yeah, well, there's that. And, and there's also the fact that he, 
you know, all his work is that the, it's intact, right? He didn't make a, a right. weird, a, you know, crappy solo album or have a half-ass band that he tried to, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's. He never made the elder is what you're trying to he say. Know, he, he's, he, he didn't make his elder, which God, now don't put it in those terms, Jeff. We need, we, we could use <laughs> his elder, but um, yeah, no, no, you yes. could, like I was talking about seeing them live. It was very, guy was very intense. Like he wasn't, he wasn't a, hey, thanks for coming, you guys, uh, kind of thing. Um, I guess you can see it on YouTube and some live clips, including that naked show. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen all of those, but I never got to see them in yeah. person live. And so I'm glad that you had that opportunity and were able to share your experience. Yeah, and guys doing that, that the, those intense, like, vibrato-y, that's guy, you know. The, yeah. You know, and, Rod, and Roger generally is doing the kind of, dare I say, clean kind of stuff behind, though they so they have their moments about doing feedback, like you said, and it, yeah, it really was a quite a guitar team, and like as you can imagine, just unbelievable to watch. Um, wow, and uh, yeah, Soraya, that original sound, right? Soraya, I mean, I mean, no one with that, it's a cliche to almost say that, like they sound like nobody, but no, they, they nobody sounds like Ben White, bro. But see, and then when Roger added that detail about they're even came, they came to a point of wanting to kind of create this sound together that they were finding complimentary amps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> that was a that that was a detail that I, I I don't think I could have ever imagined that they were just looking for other ways to kind of expand the sound that they created together. Yeah. I, I found that really fascinating. Smart people in a band. I know it's uh it, it doesn't usually happen that way. Um. <laughs> and i will add for anybody that um it, that thin white rope might be new to i doubt that there's anybody of our listeners that are in that category so i bought all of the reissues in one sitting from lisa and um she said since i bought all five that she would give me a deal so she gave me a great deal on all five ronnie you mentioned that they're already um well priced yeah. but um she she knocked off a lot when i bought all five of them so i don't know if that's an option for everybody but i was gonna say that. you might not want to publicize that <laughs> i know i know but there is this too so there is this compilation oh, that's right. so, is that spanish so only yeah yeah that's that's an import right yeah it's so it's actually put out on frontier um okay but um it might be a good place to start if you don't want to jump in and get all all five so it's got something from all of their releases so it's a good when when worlds collide is might be a good place for somebody to start if they just want to start with one but 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 if they're going to start with one and they start with a real record get this one <laughs> moon moonhead that's yeah, 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 yeah. that's, that's, the, the, that's the, i mean you know I, yeah i don't want to play favorites here i mean the first three are all really great and the, uh, so are any of those any of your records signed ronnie you have to see them yeah 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 they, they are um i'm sorry i don't have them handy but uh yeah my 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 uh my first three records are, are signed um, wow and wow. they're very i'm sorry i don't have them handy they're they they're they're, they're elaborately signed too like they they then write up and just write a signature you know like i do and just be done with it <laughs> and just be done with it yeah they, they they say funny things yeah 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 so nice but uh very nice. but uh yeah lucky enough to to have seen them and uh awesome yeah one of my favorite bands so thanks for thanks for having me around you guys yeah yeah we've been wanting to do this for a while and we didn't go yeah. too much into it but um as soraya had mentioned 
they often get thrown into this paisley underground umbrella i don't know why i I don't um maybe it's the steve wynn connection maybe with the it's a davis connection and then joseph back we we really should all talk to joseph becker too because he's he's been in a lot of you know anyway uh that's a given but yeah it's a davis thing and these guys all played with each other and like he said he was in a band with uh steve the drummer true west when he was in high school and yeah that that davis sacramento um scene back then it was wow davis Davis some great things yeah yep and then that island records yeah. uh deal that didn't pan out right, for right, all right. the bands but only except for long right and rain I mean, freight, right so cra- crash yeah. and dream so yeah there's a there's enough of links that kind of draw them in but they don't sound like anybody yeah. connected with the scene and um <laughs> you know and guys vocals are just yeah they're just it, yeah I, I think Roger said the unique sound, but it, it's beyond unique. It's just, it's a completely different yeah. imprint. There, there's, there's much more yeah. to Sacramento, Sacramento music than Tesla and cake. All right, everybody. <laughs> so. That's a good way to close this out. Yeah. Well put, well put. All right. What that? All right. All right, so, and I just need to point out to those of you who are audio only, you need to go see the YouTube because we've been graced the entire time by a poster of David Lee Roth doing the aerial <laughs> splits in the background. So I don't think there's any more auspicious occasion than Thanks this. Thanks for one. noticing, Sarah. It's there every time, but maybe it's more noticeable sometimes. And again, I- uh, I completely <laughs> noticed it today. All right. I usually and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for anyway. this movement too that it happens, but whatever. It's kind of hey, fun. I, it's it's okay. not my. I'm not doing it. So, um, yeah. It's perfect. It's but yeah, this was great. And Ronnie, we can't. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Thank you. In all seriousness, thank you, Ronnie. No, no. Really, really appreciate it. So, Ronnie, do you have a, a sign off for us today? Uh. Uh. uh uh, I, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that works. Yeah, that's my right, sign sir, right. All right, y'all. I'll see Thanks. you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh, sorry. I'm trying. It's all right. That's okay. Damn it. How come it's not? There we go. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. Jeff, <laughs> this was a really good episode and i can't thank Ro- uh, roger conkle for coming yep. on yep uh, i can't thank him yeah i totally agree yeah that was really good and thank you again to ronnie absolutely. barnett absolutely yeah all right jeff i think we need to just end it right here if we don't i'm going to be urinating in the streets <laughs> don't do it triangle song everybody you need it i'm going to be out of my hand <laughs> Groove home, basically, people. Uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> no. no. Ha, 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 ha.